from downtown San Francisco. You're listening to LexLab, a production of UC Hastings Center on Legal Technology and Innovation. LexLab. I'm Drew Amerson, the director of LexLab. And in this week's episode, we're joined by Dan Rodriguez, chair of the ABA Center on Innovation's Governing Council. Before that, Dan served as dean of Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, where he was also the Harold Washington professor. Dan joins us today to reflect on his time as dean and where the industry stands today on innovations in the field of legal technology and legal education. Uh, I, I became interested in the intersection among law, business, and technology uh, uh, more or less as I became the dean at uh, Northwestern. It didn't stem, in my case, as it, as it does from so many others, from a very strong uh, scholarly interest. It didn't stem from uh, a vast range of experience in either the technology sector or sort of law and technology sector. And, and none of that's by way of apology. We all come to these topics with our own background and own interests. In my case, I came to it by observing, by realizing, by understanding. Indeed, that was some of the attraction for me to, to come back into deaning. I was dean at the University of San Diego uh, in another <laughs> point in my life. But coming to Northwestern, becoming as dean, was because I really wanted to work with colleagues to build something. I wanted to build something in particular, help build something that really reflected uh, the, the modern trends in legal practice. I was coming into this role uh, uh, for a time, as many of you will remember, after, call it the crash, the, the adjustment, the, things weren't great and rosy with respect to the legal profession and opportunities for law graduates. And sort of we had, we had a, uh, a sort of a, 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 a kick in the pants, let's just put it that way, I think in legal education generally, to think about ways in which we could better prepare our students and graduates for a changing dynamic profession. We could help our students get jobs, to be, more, to be more blunt. And we would also arrest what was and was going to be for the next several years a long, slow, steady decline in interest in law schools. So it was, as it were, a perfect storm. And we realized that our uh, law school, like so many other uh, folks did at their law schools, that there needed to be some systematic change. And so I embarked on a sort of a multi-year strategy, again, in cooperation, collaboration with many stakeholders, to really think about uh, uh, thinking seriously about how we could adapt and change with respect to our curriculum and programs. And in particular, to finally get to the point, in particular, see how we could leverage the changing role of technology in society, in the economy, in law, in a way that would benefit our uh, law school and benefit the legal profession generally. So it's from that vantage point that I spent a number of years working on developing initiatives and programs, some of which I'll talk about, but I don't want this to be an infomercial so much as maybe a broader sense of some trends in legal education of which uh, the law school that I know best, my law school has been a part of, and I, if I could say unhumbly in some respects uh, at, the, at the cutting edge of, again, uh, joined by, by other schools. And also, and also talk a little bit about how that might, uh, how might that bear on initiatives initiatives uh, to, uh, uh, that are happening uh, here. The, the, the slides here are a bit of a crutch. Uh, uh, I don't, uh, I don't uh, need all of them, and I don't have a big, long uh, speech to give, but I wanted to, to illustrate some of the key themes under the rubric of how is it th that things have changed and are changing, but really focus in more on a conversation, uh, conversation about legal education. I brought my old-school, low-tech means of, some of you may be familiar with this, it's a notebook, this is a pen, it's old-fashioned. 
but it's meant as much so I can learn from you, and I hope we'll have an opportunity to have a conversation. I love, love, love talking at law schools and a variety of law schools precisely in order to get the input and, 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 and participation and vision of, uh, of a variety of folks. I also have a self-interested, you might say selfish uh, agenda at heart, is a colleague of mine at Stanford, uh, uh, someone who's there as, among other things, associate dean involved in in charge of legal technology initiatives, and I are working on, a, on, a, on an article, maybe a series of articles, on how we might reform law schools to take advantage of the changing dynamics of law tech. So we're, we're anxious to get input uh, from you all uh, on, that, uh, on that theme. So as we say in the law biz, I'm going to ask you to make a stipulation without going through an enormous amount of scaffolding on my part to convince you. And that's I might ask you to make a several stipulations, but here's one. I'd like you to stipulate that technology is changing society in important ways. Duh. Right in some in, in some sense that 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 uh, change is is very much uh, uh, underway, which is why I can go through some of these uh, not particularly beautiful slides. They're not particularly high tech in a way that uh, in a way that uh, uh, takes some time. Now this has become tired, almost trite. And uh, Mr. Clayton, Christ Professor Clayton Christensen of the Harvard Business School has been dining out, as it were, I suppose, for many years on this insight. But it's nonetheless a profound insight. And it's an insight about uh, the impact of what he calls disruptive innovation. It's an innovation that creates a new market and value network and eventually disrupts an existing market and value network, displacing established market-leading firms, products, and alliances. Horses replaced by automobiles. Uh, 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 technology with respect to mainframe computers displaced by personal computers. Choose your poison, maybe not the best way to put it, choose your best example. But it's basically a disruptive innovation that, ha that is not simply an innovation, a new insight, but something that is marketed and monetized, that's key, in a way that disrupts existing products. So it's not just the horses replaced by the automobile. The automobile puts buggy whip manufacturers out of business. No longer a market because their whole business model was selling buggy whips to individuals for, who would be riding horse-drawn carriages. So the disruptive innovation not only impacts the direct uh, uh, mechanism that's being, uh, that's being displaced, but also folks that, uh, that uh, are in the business consumers and producers, manufacturers and, and, and et cetera, that are affected by this, uh, by this uh, technology. And again, there, there are, oh wow, this slide was even better the second time around. Uh, so again, many, many examples of disruptors. C, uh, CV DVDs are replaced by digital media, light bulbs by LEDs. If we had more time, you, would, you I'm sure would convince me easily that that even is an anachronistic slide. It's about a year old and maybe there should be some examples on the right hand of the column of those disruptors themselves being disrupted, which of course is exactly the point. This technology moves very click, uh, quickly and these disruptive innovations are profound and important. So here's where sort of the stipulation comes in. And, and we can spend a lot of time on this, but I'd like to sort of pass it by again as, as an assumption that underlies what we want to talk about that's particularly germane to the legal profession and legal education. So can we stipulate that technological change has an enormous impact on the economy? And that, just to unpack that just a little bit, a few seconds, is not only uh, on the economy in the sense of enhancing production, the overall pie as it were, but it also has distributional effects that ought not to be minimized. That, so when we mean the economy, we mean the economy in the broadest sense. It's not just a story of, isn't life better thanks to technology? The story is a complicated one. D 
deeply and broadly complicated one because of the impacts of the economy, because of the impacts on distribution, because of the impact on, on all individuals, which is to say everyone that's affected by the economy in important ways. We can also stipulate, although it's a fascinating, interesting conversation, the impact of technology on social life. I'll, I, I suppose I'll just sort of throw out the proverbial old, old guy get off my lawn comment on that regard, which is the social media's impact, right, on intersection and, and connections that individuals make back in the olden days when you'd actually pick up this thing called a telephone and, and call people and all of that. So not suggesting that the impact is all bad or even mostly bad. It's just to stipulate, as it were, that technology has had a significant impact on social life. And also on politics. Here I have to have a, give a shout out to a book I'm two-thirds through. Forgive me, it's a new book. There's a wonderful book that's come out by a, by a, a young political scientist, really a young, uh, a young person, uh, 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 a Brit, named Jamie Susskind, called, uh, called Future Politics. And I strongly recommend it to you. As it happens, for those of you who have read about technology in the law biz, you may recognize the last name, Richard Susskind, who made his name with uh, a, a famous, ominously titled book, The End of Lawyers. Uh, he did have a question mark after that. And Tomorrow's Lawyer has been an enormously important, impactful voice in the area of law and technology. Jamie is his son and wrote this book called Future Politics, which again is a wonderful uh, a tour through the impact of technological change on politics. So stipulation, stipulation, stipulation. And, and again, this is, a, this is about the most homely, simplistic uh, 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 chart that you can possibly imagine to summarize an immensely complicated topic which is essentially to say that one of the significant impacts, as a segue into talking about the legal profession, one of the most significant impacts of technology on the way we do business and think about do, doing business as future lawyers or current lawyers is, uh, is because of the availability of data, big data, and what we do with that data, something that didn't exist before. Indeed, indeed, even during the period of time, not that long ago, but several years ago, in which computing power was sky high, not as high as it is now, but in which the capacity of computers was enormous and immense. Still, still, progress couldn't truly be made, or at least at the ex uh, exponential rate as it is now, because of the absence of the availability of big data, and thus the difficult puzzle of what exactly to, uh, to uh, do with it. But now we have statistics and statistical abilities, uh, the, the, uh, the capacity to develop various algorithms to solve or address a number of myriad kinds of problems, again, for better or worse. We have machine learning and artificial intelligence that overlap and are not exactly identical in some ways in terms of law and the impact on the law for reasons we could discuss. It's really machine learning, the capacity of machines with the availability of big data and computing, supercomputing power to develop variety of data and translate that into information that we could utilize as lawyers, as clients, as individuals in business that has been, that reflects a significant amount of, uh, of uh, progress. But no doubt, within each of those cells uh, uh, is captured a variety of aspects and elements of technology, which some of you in this room know better, much better than I could or than most of your classmates could, but so I hope you'll trust me in saying that all of these have made a significant uh, impact. This is just a point, uh, you, you, even if you haven't seen the chart, you get the gist of it, which is the, uh, the impact of Moore's law, the computing, the kind of the constant exponential increase in computing power. And I'm sorry, it's just to say that the development and the move from way, way back when, we're talking here about the beginning of the 20th century, from uh, an analytical engine to, uh, I can't even read what that is, to IBM tabulator, 
right, happens, and, and, and just notice the, 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 uh, uh, the direction of, the, of movement. So it takes a bunch of years to get from this to this. The point is, you have an exponential increase in a very, very short period of time. So from the, Apple, the development of the Apple Macintosh, which I'm old enough to remember when it was rolled out, right, from 1984, remember the ad, one-time ad on the Super Bowl, 1984, to, to this unbelievable uh, uh, integrated circuit power is uh, a fairly short period of time. Computing improves rapidly is the takeaway message and the point. And it underscores a lot of the impact that, that big data and machine learning, predictive analytics can, uh, can and does yield. So what does it disrupt? Come back to the metaphor of disruptive innova uh, innovation. What in particular does technology disrupt from the vantage point of our topic here, which is the law? Okay, it disrupts a lot of things. But let's start, a, start, a, start to get a focus in on the law. One thing is it disrupts legal subjects. To get a little academic-y on us all, it disrupts legal subjects, how we think about legal subjects. So you've all been in various times, maybe some of you are experiencing it as we speak, going through the core of the curriculum in law school. And what's remarkable in some ways, and I'm saying remarkable in a neutral way, maybe it's a remarkably good thing, maybe it's a remarkably awful thing, is you could, uh, as my torts professor used to say, go back in time and wake up you know, out of a sound sleep a, a, uh, a lawyer from 1930, okay, and uh, say, hey, what are you studying uh, in law school in order to, uh, to have your foundational core understanding of what it means to be a lawyer? And what that person would mumble out of a sound sleep is, well, I'm taking a course in torts and property and civil procedure and basically doing the same stuff that we're doing 80 years later. And uh, yes, there's been an expansion in the legal curricula, there are new courses because of new areas of law, but it's still, we're in a very conservative business. Very conservative business. And the categories, public versus private law, you know, uh, 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 what business law means versus, uh, you know, transactional law versus litigation, civil procedure versus criminal procedure, all of those, although the contents has changed an enormous amount, the basic subjects have proved remarkably stable and resilient against change. That is starting to change, though, in important ways, and technology is not the only cause of that. The imagination of legal educators is part of that. Student demand is part of that. What, what law firms are demanding is part of that. But technology is a big part of that, which is this point. So this is, if we had more time, we could talk about it at more. It's, it's a recent example that I, that, I, uh, that I love. This group of folks in Holland, supported by the bank there, basically said, here's what we really can do now with the combination of of uh, big data and analytics and 3D printing. We can make uh, uh, in, in a lab, basically, a painting that doesn't just uh, look a lot like a Rembrandt, but actually is identical for all intents and purposes in the kind of paint, in the kind of style, et cetera, that couldn't be discerned from, uh, from an expert, other than if the expert knew just exactly what Rembrandt had painted. So for all intents and purposes, it is exactly what a Rembrandt painting would be, and it can be generated by a machine. I mean, it's sort of printed out. Interesting. Question is, what, if anything, does that do to our understandings of copyright law? Copyright is built on the kind of the duh paradigm, like of course, that it, it sets out to uh, protect right, the manifestation of certain inventions by humans. It never really occurs to our scheme and system of copyright law that there would be the production, much less the proliferation, of works of art 
that would be produced by machines. Now, it's not to say we haven't had printing, we haven't had the ability of machines to, to mechanize a lot of those productive de production devices, but those have been, relatively speaking, easy kind of copyright cases because the stipulation has been those are the works and the product of humans. So what a computer produces, what a printer produces, whatever is the product of humans. It's not so clear in the next Rembrandt project whether it's the product of humans at all. The humans have an input at the very beginning of the process. But once the algorithms really get going, once the technology really gets going, there is a perfectly plausible school of thought that the production that is done is done entirely by, uh, by machines. There's a wonderful uh, website or experiment that's come out. I love the title. It's called Bot Dylan. And it's basically, a, 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 again, a programming mechanism that generates, no, not Bob Dylan songs, but, uh, but actually a variety of songs with certain inputs that, that, uh, that are, you know, good song. I mean, it's in the eye of the beholder, but are actually uh, uh, music that is produced, again, entirely by machines. So it's copyright law exists as the substructure of the subject. But I think it's fair to say, even though there's no clear answer to whether it is a machine or is a human, these are what courts are fighting about as we speak, and the European Union is developing standards and criteria to deal with these machine-generated ones, so is the US, it disrupts the legal subject in a variety of ways. In other words, we think about copyright differently, or we ought to, because of the impact of technology in this, in this, uh, in this way. Uh, it's basic, CRISPR technology is really at the very cutting edge. It's part of synthetic biology, and it is essentially gene editing. So it's the capacity that is made available thanks to technology to engage in extraordinary amount of, of gene editing for, import, uh, for particularly important work. Re uh, resolving and curing diseases to be sure, but doing a lot of other things. The potential of the CRISPR technology, which again has come upon us roughly in the last two and a half years, and is going through uh, uh, quite uh, uh, sudden changes, uh, has uh, 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 impacts that might uh, uh, range from, let's call them the more innocuous, not unimportant, but morally innocuous, to morally problematic. So better crops through the use of CRISPR. Who can be against that? New, new antibiotics and antivirals. Yes, issues of regulation, issues of risk, but that's progress enabled through uh, uh, CRISPR. So we're all for that up to now, right? Weapons of mass destruction. It turns out that the CRISPR technology enables uh, uh, the use of technology for drones and, other, and, and biologic agents and other things that are highly problematic and uh, crying out for regulation. Designer babies. Whatever, whatever the prospect and the perils of CRISPR, the point is we don't have extant legal subjects that can adequately deal with these issues. It doesn't mean that we lack an imagination or vocabulary to challenge or to confront the various aspects of the regulation of this highly complex biological technology. It's that we can't park these issues in existing legal subjects and just say, oh, this is food and drug law. It is and it isn't. This is intellectual property law. It sort of is, sort of isn't. This is, uh, this is you know, in the confines of contract law. Yeah, kinda. But we need different, uh, to reimagine legal subjects to know where to do it. And to, you, to, to come back to a kind of prosaic point about where it fits in in the law school curriculum, everywhere and nowhere. So if you say, if someone uh, marches into the dean's office and says CRISPR is a major technology, we have to confront it, we have to deal with it, it has to be in the law school curriculum, what is her answer to where it goes? Same sort of thing with Next Rembrandt, sort of in existing paradigms, but the point is that technology is disrupting those existing paradigms in a variety of ways. Criminal justice, what can technology 
tell us about criminal justice. Turns out that in recent years, maybe even more to the point in recent months, there's been a growing use of predictive analytics to aid judges and bureaucrats of other sort, but judges, in sentencing. Now you might say, well, that's, a, that's an oldie, but uh, maybe not necessarily goodie, right? The, the notion that you could show and, and measure recidivism through various uh, algorithms. Didn't we displace that a long time ago? Wasn't that tossed out uh, in, the same, in the same way that uh, folks who uh, uh, argued for genetic predisposition to crime were, were, uh, were uh, widely shouted down? Well, not so fast, because availability of big data and algorithms suggests that, like it or not, but these are pretty good predictors. Pretty good predictors. But is pretty good enough? What are the risks and pitfalls of using predictive analytics with the availability of big data to, to predict a recidivism uh, in the context of sentencing? And there are folks who are starting to look at this in a fairly clear way. And there are, this is one uh, uh, a title from one article. Sorry, what did I do? Oops. But, uh, but there are others as well, which is to say that there are scholars, there are pundits, there are journalists who are studying the advantages and disadvantages of the use of this kind of technology in an area so near and dear to the heart of what is a fair and moral and ethical criminal justice system, namely predicting, uh, predicting uh, crime uh, uh, in advance. So these are some examples. There's some sort of some of my favorite recent examples. You'll have others to illustrate the point that technology is disrupting legal subjects in some important ways. Disrupting legal practice. This is just a, 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 a wholly uh, arbitrary list that fits on one slide that really deserves 300 slides to illustrate this point. Every single week comes a new company that is, or an existing company that's turning its attention to opportunities in the space of law and legal practice. They don't all do the same thing, but they share in common they are entrepreneurs Companies, tiny, small, medium-sized, big, or in the case of, say, IBM, gigantic, that are looking to uh, leverage technology, new technologies, either of their own invention or borrowing and, and, uh, from, from others to apply in the legal space. Neota Logic is a company that's looking to, uh, to sort of uh, logical sequences in order to promote uh, 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 contracts, and different, uh, uh, different kinds of modality of contracts and contract drafting. Ross Intelligence, which I should say in the interest of disclosure, I have a consultancy with that is involved in uh, 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 using a machine learning for uh, legal research, the generation of, of, uh, of legal research. Uh, IBM Watson, you know, that sort of emerged from the famous, now it seems like so long ago, but not that long ago, defeat of the world champions in jeopardy, right, which was seen as an enormous, was an enormous step forward in terms of the development of machine to track individual learning. That novelty, in some sense, was blown out of the water as recently as a couple of years ago when the game that they thought would not be able to be beaten in our lifetime by a computer, which was the game Go, was defeated by uh, machine uh, learning uh, through what was called AlphaGo, which absolutely destroyed the very best uh, players in that particular game as a utilization of deep learning which is just a sort of a stand-in for the ability of the machine and artificial intelligence to learn from, uh, through the use of big data, newer and newer kinds of, uh, kinds of uh, innovations and kinds of information. So I'm not going to go through all of them. It's just to illustrate the point, there's a lot of companies. And they come and go. This chart a year and a half from now, 
will have different set of, set of companies. It is a turbulent economy in, uh, in, legal, in legal tech. Again, choose your poison. The degree and extent to which AI is revolutionizing law is a bit in the eye of the beholder, which doesn't mean it's entirely subjective. It means, as far as I'm concerned, it's simply too soon to tell. Too soon to tell. The, the revolutionary, revolutionary potential of AI rests on a number of assumptions, and they're not just technology or technological assumptions. They're assumptions about the state of human cognitive biases, human capacity to adopt and adapt and embrace new technologies. They depend on assumptions about regulation and regulatory success and failure. They depend upon the whole sort of attitude toward government or big government, not only in the U.S., but in other places. There is a, a, a proverbial arms race going on now between the United States and China in terms of the development of artificial intelligence. And the stakes are not just which country wins in terms of AI, but what the potential and potentiality is of the technology in terms of you know, revolutionizing society. And it has a piece in law, right? In our humble area of the world, it has a piece uh, uh, of potential impact with respect to, uh, to, uh, to law. So I like this because it's a quote from somebody who, who basically is, uh, is uh, whose, whose economic well-being depends on the availability and utilization of, uh, of AI. So she's saying, don't worry, don't have to worry about rob robot overlords. Uh, you might have to worry about the overlords from law geeks, but uh, that's, a different, uh, that's a different peril. Again, I'm just going to go through these as, as quick examples. They're, you know, they're potentially destabilizing. This, I think, is a mixed bag. As a young guy, also happens to be a Brit, I don't know if there's a theme here, uh, uh, Stanford University dropout by the name of Josh Browder. I think he maybe he's 22, maybe he's all the way as old as 23 now. And he developed a few years ago, as he says, if you watch this YouTube video, he says his parents got upset because he had accumulated all these parking tickets. And after the 17th or 18th parking ticket, they said, we're not going to pay anymore. When I watched that YouTube video, I said, what happened in the first 16? That's a question about parenting, but that's, I have to bracket that. But after the 17th or 18th, they said, that's it, no more. So he developed a chatbot mechanism called Do Not Pay in order to provide an opportunity for individuals to be helped in terms of parking tickets. Just in the last 12 weeks, he has doubled down, tripled down on that, and released a chatbot-enabled app, also called Do Not Pay, that is, as you can tell from on purple, sue anyone. Problematic. I'm not here to recommend it. In fact, I I, if anything, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, to warn you against the running out and getting Josh Browder's uh, chatbot app, because if you looked at the, if you just looked at my Twitter feed to say nothing of actual information on the internet, you'll see that as is characteristic of a lot of the use of technology, particularly apps in this space, they are quite buggy to use an old fashioned term. And, uh, and it takes in some sense, in some cases months, in rare cases years for it to sort out in a way that realizes the potential that is provided by the use of the technology. But it's still potentially really destabilizing. If you want to see a lot of nervous folks uh, walk up behind 30-ish uh, uh, lawyers wherever they congregate here in the city and say, do not pay, chatbot, Josh Browder. Like, ah, they're all upset. I'm going to skip this. This is, this is, uh, this is interesting. This is, uh, this is near, a little dear, dear to my heart because I've heard about it because the, the, the ringleader of this is uh, at Stanford and runs the Stanford Legal Design Lab, a, a remarkable woman by the name of Margaret Hagan, and her and her colleague, a guy by the name of David Colarusso, who's at Suffolk, put together this game. What they're basically interested in doing is figuring out how folks identify problems as legal problems. We know from the research on the access to justice crisis that one of the fundamental problems is so many individuals who face crises in their lives, 
which for them are enormous. Inability to pay because of landlord-tenant disputes, family uh, issues, issues involving neighbors, don't know and haven't yet identified their issue as a legal issue to even get to the next step to see whether they have access to legal information, either in the form of a lawyer or in the form of an online service provider or anything like that. So what, they, what, uh, what Margaret and David are looking to do is to use gamification, sort of all the rage, games, to develop a database that will really tell us and inform us how folks identify issues as legal problems or not legal problems. And where, I'll just throw this out as a question, see if, see if any of you know this. They had to find like a big database of folks asking questions generally about, hey, I've got this jerk who's living next door to me and you know, he's got a big vicious dog, whatever. So before they developed this game, they were accumulating this data to try to help them develop this triage this. Where do you think they, they look to find that? based on your, on your, Reddit, who said that? Reddit, maybe you, maybe you knew, so maybe you cheated. But, uh, I was repeating what somebody else said. Okay, but it's really interesting. You know, the inst one's instinct might be, oh, they went to the courthouse and talked to people as they were leaving the courthouse or anything like that. No, Reddit, which accumulates a mat for, you know, for all the other goofy things it does, accumulates this massive database, right, of individuals who write these questions. So anyway, Learned Hands, I, when, I, when I heard about this, I thought the great judge Learned Hands probably turning over his grave at having his name referred to in this. But Learned Hands is a way of developing a game that generates enormous amount of information that will help us learn, help us learn about what are identified as legal problems. Again, many, many examples of the use of technology to disrupt legal practice. Let me quickly talk about, so disrupting legal subjects, disrupting legal practice, and, and, and let me just pause as a, as a segue to this. Notice what I hadn't mentioned because three or, Six or seven years ago, this seems so important. Now that it's, it's, it's so commonplace as to be too mundane to talk about, and I'm talking about things like e-discovery. Now it's just done. What was exotic six years ago? Oh my God, said you know, Morrison and Forrester, we're starting to use this new technology, e-discovery, which basically means you can go in, take all of these documents, use an algorithm, and use predictive analytics so that you can just look through some of the documents rather than 10,000 or 100,000 documents. You need fewer lawyers and the use of technology. Now it's positively malpractice if you don't use, and hugely inefficient if you don't use uh, some, some amount of e-discovery. Or here's another example, ODR used to be really fancy if you talked about online dispute resolution. It's still very important, just as e-discovery is very important, but it is commonplace. So the use of technology to destabilize law that maybe 10 years ago folks would say, well, that's never gonna catch on. No court would allow e-discovery. ODR, that's not gonna catch on. No, uh, no folks would utilize that, is, is just basically the practice of law in various ways. It's like conversation 30 years ago when folks said, there's this thing called Lexus and Westlaw. You have no idea what it's, it's gonna rock your world. Well, it did in some important ways. Now it's just doing legal research. Apologies to law librarians out there. It's part of doing legal research, how's that? So deep, destabilizing law, just what destabilizes law? What in, here's the question, what in technology is significantly destabilizing law and legal practice? Availability of data, I've said that any number of times. Uh, legal information, including legal information retrieval, how we do legal research in, in whatever uh, uh, form it takes and for whatever purpose, the kind of the, the evaluation of legal information. What a, so here's an example. A company out of Stanford that sim, uh, has since been bought up by Lexis called Lex Machina was created for the purpose of enabling individuals to predict outcomes in patent cases. 
by accumulating an enormous amount of data, it would provide information for individuals to use, for better or worse, in predicting outcomes that looked pretty good, despite efforts on the part of the federal courts through PACE or other devices to shield that information, despite the risk that individuals would misuse that information, despite the crankiness of judges who said, I'm not an automaton, you can't predict the outcome, you know, I decide every case originally tabula rasa. The fact is that that turned out to be an enormously uh, impactful technology in, in changing the way in which we think about and use legal information. Performance institutions, which is sort of an overly clever vernacular that I use to describe the kinds of institutions that are involved in the law, courts, businesses, uh, administrative agencies, all the kinds of entities that we evaluate and measure as, uh, as pre performing certain, uh, certain tasks. Business models, we haven't talked a lot about this, to now, although I'm sure you've thought about this, which is to what extent does it change the organization of the modern law firm? To what extent does it change the organization of a company through the use and the availability of technology and regulation? A topic that's near and dear to my heart and the heart of so many others is what do we do about it? How do we think about it in this, uh, in this uh, context? I want to now get a little uh, uh, up on a soapbox. I think the use of technology, available technology and potential technology, has the prospect of doing something that I believe is enormously impactful and good and, and needs to be done, which is democratizing law, making it more readily available. Not only democratizing what lawyers do, but democratizing the provision and availability of legal services. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. That's not why the neotologics of the world are in business, but it does represent a broadening and widening of the pie in a world in which we know there's an enormous access to justice crisis. Now it does, here's the risk, and here, here we start introducing uh, some topics about legal education, it does represent a potential risk, maybe a threat, maybe even an existential threat to the model of what we do in the 200 plus American law schools. Democratizing law may not be good, wait for it, for the well-being of lawyers, but it's good for society, and that, and that uh, it's potentially good for society, and that should be attended to. So, from, uh, so the move, it helps accelerate the move. It doesn't do it on its own, but the availability and the use of technology helps accelerate the move from traditional lawyering, which, by the way, under the, in the American regime, only lawyers can do, lawyers, credentialed lawyers can do, to the provision of legal services provided by lawyers and non-lawyers alike. It means that access to justice is access to the tools of advocacy of representation from the individuals and to the individuals them, uh, themselves. And it means that, last but not least, legal practice is not just about lawyers anymore. This is the, forgive me for this very short infomercial. I said there won't be a lot of infomercials, but here's one. One, one, thing, one initiative that we've undertaken at, at, uh, at Northwestern, and I'm happy to be at Hastings because I understand that Hastings also was on the forefront of this. We're two of the few schools that can be said that we have as part of our educational model and business model, your law school, my law school, educating folks who are not aspiring to be lawyers as part and parcel of what we do. Not just as a small appendage, but a significant part of what we do. What we do at Northwestern is through this Master of Science in Law, we, we, we provide a larger font when we educate those students that I provided to you now, but basically business-centered legal trading for individuals who aspire to be great clients, great entrepreneurs, great citizens. They all share in common, they have STEM backgrounds, so it's a technology-focused program. But it's a way, uh, uh, we see it uh, as helping in the democratization of law. I love the quote, I always tell my team we're not here to solve legal problems, this is the uh, GC of Uber, 
We're here to solve business problems. So the lines, the silos between what a business person does in the C-suite and what a lawyer does in the GC's office is starting to break down. And that's a good thing. That, that, that law is seen as a species of management, and management is a species of law. So the lawyer is not the proverbial abominable no man. You know, no, can't do that. Here I'm standing in the way of progress, which is, of course, hyperbole anyway, but, but nonetheless captures an image of lawyers among folks in the business sector, just ask around. And it changes that in some way because lawyers are now becoming part of the solution, not just part of the, of the problem. So. Uh, Let's skip over that again, because I think I've made that, made that point. I'll put the exclamation part. Yeah, this is the part where it's, it represents maybe a threat and in some, in some folks' minds an existential threat to our way of doing business because it might portend the end of the guilt. Let's think about it for a moment. Only two of the three great professions, there are a lot of professions, but you think of law, medicine, business. Two of the three, law and medicine, require you to have a very specific credential in order to do your work. You have to have an MD, at the very least, you have to have more than that. At the very least, you have, an, have to have an MD to qualify to be a doctor. At the very least, you have to, in the U.S., have a JD to qualify to be a lawyer, in addition to other credentialing. Oh, and by the way, what it means to have a JD means something quite specific. It ain't a one-year uh, task. It ain't a one-and-a-half-year task. It's a three-year task from in 49 of the 50 states. Yeah, 49 of the 50 states from an ABA-accredited law school in order to qualify you to provide legal services, right, to be a lawyer. That's starting to become destabilized in an important way. Again, I can say this even though I've spent my entire career in law schools and legal education. No, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200, do not detour, entire career in legal education. Educating folks for the JD that that is going to become anachronistic. We are gonna live in our lifetimes through a period in which that guild will become at least destabilized if not ending all uh, uh, together. Uh, I say moonshot, not to, not to get too, again, a little carried away, but what we're really at aspiring to do through the use of technology. 80% of the population are underserved, or unserved by uh, lawyers. Uh, again, we talked about part of the problem is the, the uh, lack of the ability to identify particular legal problems, the absence of public and private investment, and the imperative for justice and social need that's part of access to justice. Now, if I were writing this down, I'd say dot, 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 because I want to I pivot now to spend uh, uh, time and, 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 and wind down to, to get your questions and have a conversation about the legal education part. So I'm going to skip over the legal services. We can come back to that. What does it mean for legal education, for what we do on a daily basis? And I mean the collective we. I don't just mean the deans of the schools. I don't just mean the faculty, administrators. The collective we in any environment, including this one in my law school, in which the decisions should be made, fundamentally by a group of stakeholders, the students, present incoming, the alumni, the deans, the faculty, uh, uh, in your case, you know, uh, those to which you're publicly accountable as a public law school, in my case as a private school, those to which I'm accountable from our trustees and all of that, but we all have uh, folks who are, we are representing and listening to, and the question is what are our responsibilities uh, and implications for legal education? I like that, that was my, that's my quote. So if you like that, uh, it's from, uh, it's a little riff on uh, Shakespeare. First thing we do, let's skill all the lawyers. <laughs> what do we do with respect, with respect to technology? What's the aspiration? You can get in the weeds about this, but this is a little bit above the weeds, above the legalized weeds in California. It's another topic, another course I teach. Uh, foundational learning. There should be a core. There should be, we could quarrel and should quarrel, 
maybe not quarrel. We should have a dialogue about what exactly goes into the core. But once we've identified what that core is, there should be core technical and technological competencies that all law graduates should have. Does that require a, a mandatory course in coding? Some people think yes, some people say no. I'm sort of ambivalent about it. I used to be more enthusiastic about it. But then, the, but, but then it, it, it dawned on me, didn't dawn on me, I was sort of persuaded that the notion that you develop great uh, uh, proficiency in technology through having a course in, uh, in which you could learn how to use Python for coding might be a little narrow. So maybe it needs to be broader than that. But whatever, whatever the, the core, it's, it's about foundational uh, learning. Now, whether that should be in the course of standard courses in the first year, whether it should be more boutique courses, like take this before you graduate, in, for example, the way in which the ABA now requires six credits of experiential learning before you graduate, I think a good development, but nonetheless, and one that actually reinforced what schools were doing all along, but it could be some version of that, or whether it should be what Deborah Rohde in the context of, of uh, legal ethics has called the pervasive method the idea that it pervades throughout the curriculum. Those are for individual decisions for individual schools to decide. Maybe, maybe with some input or more from the ABA, but I think those are mostly decisions that schools should decide. But can we agree that there ought to be uh, 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 foundational learning? And certainly, there should be experiential learning. I hope this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. It's hard to imagine truly learning about and deploying legal technology without a hands-on work. Good Lord, I'm standing in a room that is called the Lex Lab. So this has got to be the manifestation, the iteration of the basic view that when you're doing and utilizing technology and skills of entrepreneurship or whatever, you read about it in books, you dialogue about it in foundational courses, but you actually have hands-on training and do it. And that is part of your experiential learning. Now, something I want to come back to if we have time that is a little more in the weeds, is whether the, 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 the template should be like clinical education. I have some views about that. But, but now, it just at some level of abstraction, let me just say that, that, uh, that certainly the foundational learning has to go hand in hand with experiential learning and vice versa. Or synthetic is a better way to put it rather than vice versa. And new mindsets. I know it's, it's sort of a, it's a gimmicky phrase, but I like it nonetheless. Uh, the one phrase, by the way, I, I hate, which is practice readiness. Uh, but the one I like is entrepreneurial mindset. The notion that what we're training our students is to have an entrepreneurial mindset. Doesn't mean they're all going to go out and be entrepreneurs. God bless them if they are. But that every student, whether they're heading to big law, they're heading to medium-sized law, they're going to a GC's office, they're going to the public sector, public service, to be entrepreneurs should have an entrepreneurial mindset. And, and technology is one way to help usher that along. It's not the only way, but it's one way to help that, uh, help that, uh, help that development. Uh, again, I wish I had thought of this. wish I had thought of a lot of things which I had thought of disruptive technology uh, 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 or innovation. But here's one that someone came up with, which is the idea of creating the T-shaped lawyer, right? Which is, uh, uh, which is you know, the, the, the bottom part of the T, the vertical part, right, is about de uh, uh, depth of knowledge in law. It's what we aspire to. It's what we aspire to. This is, this is a phrase that for me is somewhere in between practice readiness I hate and entrepreneurial mindset I love, and that's thinking like a lawyer. I think it's just so much packed into that, it's hard to, it's hard to unpack. But if, if, if anything's packed into it that's meaningful, what we're trying to do is to help you think like a lawyer. It's both parts. It's the vertical part, which is a depth and breadth of legal knowledge, but it's also the horizontal part, which is exposure to other fields. It's multidisciplinary. That's the thing about technology. It knows no boundaries. 
you don't go to college and major in technology. Yeah, you may major in computer science. You may uh, major in a science in which you're utilizing technology. But somebody says, I want to have four years, six years, eight years of education in technology. The first, first of all, it sounds exhausting when you just think about it. But second of all, what you're really aspiring to do is to get a breadth of knowledge that is multidisciplinary. Why don't we think about training our law students in exactly the same way with a breadth and depth of multidisciplinary skills? You need the whole T. So what is to be done to channel Lenin? Vladimir, not John. What is to be done? What are we actually supposed to, 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 uh, to do? Here's some thoughts that are, we're still working on this, but you know, they're not really paired opposites, but they're kind of, they reflect the, uh, what did, uh, the, the, the Hegelian dynamic between the, anyway, I'm not, I can't even think about it on the fly. They reject an ambivalence, a tension. How's that? A tension between two different, different models, how we think about it. So here's one tension. Infusion or supplementation? I already sort of mentioned that point in connection with foundational uh, learning. Do we think about technology education in law school as infusing everything we do with technology? Think about your professors. You don't have to shout out their names. But think about your professors. Can you imagine that all of them will be truly embrace, have the capacity, the, the incentive, the enthusiasm to embrace the development and the teaching of technology in their classroom? You go to the, the most uh, dyed-in-the-wool, uh, uh, experienced, notice I didn't say oldest, experienced civil procedure teacher here at Hastings and say, could you spend three weeks on e-discovery? Tell me how that goes. I can tell you how it goes at my school, not all that great. So that's to say, one has to be realistic, if not cynical, then realistic, about the capacity and willingness of law professors just change the way that they're doing, changing their syllabi and changing their teaching in order to accommodate the use of technology. Now, having said that, new faculty are being hired every day, not every day, but routinely. Uh, you can teach, teach old dogs new tricks. I'm an example of that. Others are as well. You can think about developing your curricula and, and, and courses to adapt to, to new understandings. So you can see a certain amount of infusion throughout the uh, uh, curriculum. But the te it's tempting to think about supplementation, doing what you're doing and adding to it. So a number of schools have experimented with certificate programs. Maybe that's part of the answer. So you're certified, as it were, in having more expertise in legal technology. Some are looking to replace some of the uh, of the uh, electives in what's often called the vast wasteland of the third year. I'm sure it's not that way here, but there's, it's said about some law schools, what are we actually figuring out what to do in that last semester year of law school? Maybe an answer is developing a much more robust connection to technology. So I'm not here to provide the answer or even to suggest or gesture toward an answer. These are the kinds of tensions and the issues that, that, uh, that schools uh, are struggling with every day. Uh, including schools, I'll use the example of Stanford, not a school I teach at other than as a visitor, but a school that, is, that, is, that is, uh, uh, has an array, a wealth. We think about Stanford, I think about wealth. A wealth of technology and technology resources and, uh, and all of that. They wring their hands, I can tell you, about whether or not they should think about uh, 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 legal technology as mainly a matter of infusion or supplementation. This is maybe something I obsess about more than I would commend you to obsess about, but I just want to call it out, which is who gets to decide? How are these choices made? Uh, at Northwestern, I, I will say for better or worse, a lot of these decisions were driven from the top. Not because I was some great seer, but because I was, uh, I was uh, uh, dead set and focused like a laser beam on enhancing technology uh, uh, initiatives in the law school, and I told them that from the very beginning, so it's sort of like what you see is what you get. Number two is I had the backing, very strong support and backing from the university. 
and, and so, so a wealth of support from key university leadership, deans of engineering, business, the provost and all of that, that was hugely helpful. Third, we were able to raise a lot of money from alums and others in order to support. Nothing that succeeds in expanding the scope of uh, wonderful initiatives than having some money to support it. Fourth, it was a very top-down institution. Very, very uh, uh, dean, uh, strong dean. Not every institution's like this. Not every institution should be like this. Maybe even my institution shouldn't have been like this. But it enabled a lot of these initiatives to be created by the dean. If, if as is the case in most other law schools, it's squishier than that, it's more complex than that, it's more democratic than that, then, uh, then you have to look for uh, where, uh, where the leadership uh, provides. I want to say, because I, 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 I get the sense that there are a number of students here in the room, just guessing, I want to say, don't minimize student activism. I remember my years at Berkeley. I remember people sitting in the dean's office. I remember, oh, those are the halcyon days of student protest. No, I didn't go there in the 60s, but, you know, but it's, it's the Bay Area. What can I say? I always came, uh, I came away from that experience with a strong sense of the value of student activism, student demands, telling us what we, tell the deans and the faculty members what should be provided in terms of the curriculum. You may only get 40% of what you demand, but that's 40% of what you got if you didn't demand it. So just as all of those pressures, other kinds of pressures not related to technology, are, are pushed and propelled by students and by alums, often, not always, by fairly recent alums, so too I think the same story should exist in technology. Don't let the law schools off the hook in terms of pushing for what you think is valuable in, uh, in, that, uh, in that regard. Rethinking the verticals is just, is, is an opaque way to make this point. You have to think about what you're actually teaching in terms of the kind of the structure of technology. It's not enough to say we have a technology-focused curriculum. If you are, for example, think, as I do, that the fulcrum, the fulcrum of a lot of law tech education is about the utilization of big data, that that drives a lot of these initiatives uh, uh, like uh, machine learning, like blockchain, like, uh, like a, a variety of other you know, information retrieval and all of that, then you want students to be exposed to the use of big data. That's part of the vertical. If instead you think that you want to put all of your chips on the table for AI, because you really think that AI is going to revolutionize law in a fundamental, profound way, and that, that you, know, you want your school to be known as the AI school, okay, then that is one of the verticals that is, that is, that is propelled by, uh, uh, by, by that. I mentioned several slides ago and several minutes ago the use, the work in criminal justice and algorithms and algorithmic bias, which has become a big issue. That is still awaiting a school a law school to really tackle those particular issues. It's found in pockets of the media, but not so much in legal scholarship, not so much in the curriculum, not so much in particular schools. That's an opportunity that awaits. So rethinking the verticals is part of it. Now this is, I, I gotta give credit to David Engstrom. He thought of this that I, uh, I didn't, but he said, here's the puzzle we have at Stanford. So we got all these folks who are interested in AI students. So we, we need more AI in the curriculum, we need more AI. What exactly does that mean? Is it, is it you're teaching about AI of law? Which is, how, which is what we've been talking about, sort of the way in which AI affects the practice of law and the thinking about law, okay? Then that's sort of a law course, but it's more like the use of technology and applying it to a variety of areas of law. Or are you talking about the law of AI, the way in which our legal system regulates the use of artificial intelligence. The point that I think David made, and I think this is right, is those aren't the, two, the same. Not only are they not the same, there's a wide gulf between the two. You're doing something very different. If you're gonna teach about 
cryptocurrency, blockchain and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, are going to teach about uh, the ways in which that, the utilization of that technology, maybe for better or worse, is going to affect law and legal practice, and there's some profound, interesting examples of where it might, or do you, is it more important to teach a course about how the law might regulate, ought to regulate, does regulate, the use of, uh, of uh, Bitcoin, the use of cryptocurrency and all of that. And you could say, well, you should do all of that. But you're probably talking about a different faculty. And you're probably talking about different expertise in order to, uh, in order to utilize it from that vantage point. And the last point is about that, that, that I dwell on quite a bit, and that, uh, that is uh, pervasive uncertainty in the temporal puzzle. Which, just to put it in simpler terms, means the technology changes awfully quickly. And the odd thing, the, the, the reality, of a law school curriculum and a law school faculty is it's a conservative venture. We don't bring in faculty and say, oh, you're, you're the cutting edge of technology. Uh, we look forward to six valuable years of your service and then we're gonna kick you out because there'll be something new going on after six years. We don't, by and large, do that. We probably do that to some faculty of some status altogether uh, unreasonably. That's another discussion. But that's generally not the model. Nor do we do that with respect to the curriculum. Here's the first year curriculum for the next four years. Please note that it's sunsetted, and after four years, we're going to do something very different. So we don't do that. We would laugh at that because we want to have solidity, the security, the stability that, that, uh, that you know, what we're teaching uh, entails, the enduring quality of, uh, of teaching people how to think like a lawyer. But is that reasonable or realistic in an era in which the technology is changing so incredibly quickly? When, when Watson came about, the IBM Watson venture, right, defeated Jeopardy, whatever, and folks were talking about AI. If you had taught AI from that vantage point 10 years afterwards, it would look very anachronistic. David uses this example. He says, we've got these institutes at Stanford, some of them, you know, like Codex. That's fine because it's just kind of gimmicky and what the hell does Codex mean? But he says, we also have a center for the internet and society. He says, that's only a couple steps better than the center for the World Wide Web or the Center for the Information Superhighway. The point is, those are anachronistic. I know, that's funny, right? I mean, you can think about that as what is the for internet society. It seems almost quaint. But that's the challenge when you create a center. You create a center for blockchain, come back to me in two years when everybody says, remember when everybody was talking about blockchain? Ha, ha, ha. Oh, well, Hastings has a center on that. Bah! You know, so you have to think about that in terms of the, in terms of the rethinking of the verticals. Now, I'm out of slides, and I'm out of time, and I want to open for Q&A, but I have a couple... Thoughts I just want to, in, again, in the old-fashioned non-slide sideway, I'll keep, uh, keep the mic, that I wanted to, 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 to mention and, and sort of leave you with in terms of my presentation in chief. All about legal education. One can hear what I and others say, folks who are more futuristic, more eloquent than I am about the use of technology and all of that. One can hear that as communicating the message, wow, in law school right now, in legal education, things seem pretty unstable. This is a story about instability, disruption, destabilization, instability in our, in our enterprise, and that's problematic. Maybe I should think twice about going to law school now. Maybe I should think twice of going to a law school that has sort of embedded priorities and commitments in one particular, in one particular place. Maybe I should be worried about job prospects because I, you're telling me that the world's unstable. I don't know this law firm or this legal organization be going to be around in a few years. That's not, the me that's not what I believe, and it's not the message that I'm looking to communicate. I prefer to instability dynamic. 
I think the world is changing in ways that are incredibly dynamic and are in legal education as well, which doesn't mean that, it's, uh, that things are unstable or destabilized. Uh, Many of the paradigm, the paradigmatic ways in which we teach, how we teach, who teaches, the structures of our enterprise are in fact durable. Doesn't mean they shouldn't be interrogated often. It doesn't mean that they aren't uh, fully diverse and fully eclectic in the ways that are important. But they don't, you don't have to move from Moore's law and technology is changing to the conclusion that we're in a world of instability, that we just need to basically put our heads in the ground, at least in terms of professional choices, and wait it out. I think that's, that's uh, not, the, not, the, uh, not the right message. Another thing I want to say, I want to just make sure I get this, get this right, which is why I'm cheating, collaboration. I, I, you know, uh, Alison Drew and I and, and so many others have talked about this, I, and I feel, particularly since I've left, I'll be a little autobiographical. As dean, I was and had to be all about Northwestern 24-7. That's my job. So the extent to which we had, I wouldn't call them trade secrets, but interesting new innovations in areas including law and technology, I would want to develop them internally as someone would in an entrepreneurial way and brand us as being the school that was ahead of the curve in terms of X and Y. And I, although I, you know, I pledged and have always pledged in all my years as dean never to negatively recruit or badmouth or, or, or say anything negative about schools, there was always an edge to talking about what we were doing because the implication was, and another school is not doing that. Well, now that I'm not dean, and even, even as, as I was, but particularly now, I see and live the value uh, to the best of my ability of collaboration with colleagues in other places. Have enormous fondness and well-being for my employer, Northwestern, not to mention some su substantial fondness for my previous employers, but it's a collective endeavor. No school is going to corner the market on moder uh, modern uh, developments in law and technology. No school is going to own the assets or the resources of any particular bit of technology. Right, since most of it now is actually open source, or in any event, law schools aren't owner, uh, owning it. And if some student, by the way, if one of you created the next great app, uh, check the rules of, from the uh, University of California. Chances are you're going to hand over much of the largesse of that to your, you know, to your to, to the owners. Same thing at Northwestern, whatever. So you can't really count on one school basically going off into their basement, as it were, and coming up with the next Microsoft and saying we're we're the next one. Our value comes in the collaboration and the intersection among a variety of, uh, of groups. And I've seen it in operation. I'll give you a couple of examples. The Learned Hands experiment, this game that, that I described, is classically a collaboration between two basically law labs, the one at uh, Stanford and one at Suffolk. Two schools from opposite, about as far away as you can get. Two schools, quite frankly, in terms of where they are in the pecking order of law schools, pretty far away from one another, resourced in a very different way. The only thing they share in common is uh, they don't even have the same number of words in their name. They both start with S. So that's an example of collaboration among two very different schools, but toward a common enterprise. We just held uh, uh, a week and a half ago, uh, some of you may have been this, this diversity hackathon. I say we, it was the diversity lab, uh, the folks who, who put it together, and it was a wonderful partnership between the diversity, well, diversity lab, Northwestern, and UC Hastings that were involved in, in, in working collaboratively on these initiatives. I just got back from a conference three weeks ago in Tucson that, in which I heard a lot about collaborations between the law labs and innovation labs at the University of Arizona and BYU, two very different schools. Right? So I think that's the future, collaboration, cooperation among, among stakeholders in different, uh, in different kinds, of, uh, kinds of environments. So why don't I stop there and take questions, and, and I'm happy, to, uh, happy to, uh, to, to do that. You've been listening to LexBlab, 
recorded live during our bi-weekly Lunch and Learn sessions at the LexLab Legal Tech Innovation Center. LexLab is UC Hastings' hub for legal technology in San Francisco, featuring a resident startup accelerator, regular panel discussions, and legal resources for entrepreneurs. To learn more about LexLab or to attend a Lunch and Learn session in person, visit us online at lexlab.uchastings.edu. I have the mic, I'll, I'll open up the Q&A. So thank you so much, Dean Rodriguez. Sure. This was really some great thought-provoking stuff. Um, I wanted to ask a question. One theme that I've seen you thinking about quite a bit is the danger of siloing. Siloing, yeah. Siloing of professions between the business school and the law school. Siloing of practice within law. So the copyright lawyers needing to think about the ethics of what's happening. And you've raised the point that we need to think in interdisciplinary ways um, and I know that you said that you are not going to give us the answers here. Yep. And a lot of the work is just raising that question. But I do want to push you a bit on that and, and bring it to the context of UC Hastings. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So we have a unique situation here. We're a standalone school. Mm -hmm. We don't have a CS department. We don't have a business school. Yep. As we are trying to figure out how to educate our students and get them ready for this interdisciplinary world, what are the things we should be thinking about? How should we be approaching that? So I'm going to say two things that seem, thank, thank you for that question. I, I have thought about that. And I've actually talked to, not Hastings in particular, but some deans and leaders of, of standalone law schools. There are a handful, of course, in the United States that, that as you say, reflect uh, 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 you know, different circumstances in terms of, in terms of their, where they are or not in, in, a, in a university setting or in, like in the case of Northwestern, in a research university setting. So two issues that seem to come in opposite directions. Number one. You, because by, by its very nature, the very nature of the school, you don't have other departments, you don't have other, I mean, you're, you're a standalone law school. You have the opportunity, I don't want to say the obligation because that's, that's heavy handed, but you have certainly the opportunity and the incentive to develop the capacity for a lot of this multidisciplinarity within the scope of the school. Now, I'm aware of resource challenges that we all face and aware of, you know, the best not being the enemy of the good. So it's not who, you wouldn't want to hear me say, hire 10 computer scientists, right, to come in and enrich the, the faculty. I'd like to, you know, I, I try to out on David Fagman. He's like, great, thanks. You give me, you know, $30 million and I'll do that. So, so the challenge, though, is, is real, but it's not insurmountable. You can. And a school like Hastings has uh, a, a rich opportunity to put a priority, a very, very strong, uh, strong thumb on the scale in favor of bringing people in. I'm talking about full-time faculty, but that could be full-time faculty or even adjunct faculty from a variety of different shapes and sizes to, in order to enrich the curriculum with multidisciplinary perspectives. Some of that would be you know, the old-fashioned ways, collaborative teaching, uh, uh, you know, conferences and, and, and gatherings in a variety of ways. And some of it could be more newfangled, which is to say faculty members who in this day and age, by and large, more often than not, have PhDs in other subjects, have experiences in other subjects, and can, and can bring those perspectives in. Now, every school can do that. But in some sense, a school that is nested in a research university might actually be a little lazy about that because they, they can figure, well, we can always count on the resources from outside. And let's not, here I know I'm preaching the choir, let's not forget about where you are in the U.S. of A., right? So the opportunity to do that here in the Bay Area, the most entrepreneurial, innovative part of the planet, not just the United States, is a golden opportunity that a standalone law school in an area of the country I won't mention uh, 
uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do. The other comment that seems to cut in that, in that opposite uh, direction, but I'll, but I'll say it anyway, is I do think that uh, Hastings has an opportunity and should avail itself of an opportunity to reach out to uh, scholars and teachers uh, who are part of parts of other universities. And, uh, and, and you know, in, a, in, in an imaginative, I don't want to say a more imaginative way because that sounds critical and I don't mean it, but let's just say in an imaginative way, a new way. And, uh, you know, I found that, and you have an, op in some ways, I'll say this, you might have an opportunity uh, to do that in a way that's different than someone at a university. You, co you come, now I've never been a provost, but I've worked closely with the provost. There's all, the, 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 the bureaucratic st uh, 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 things that stand in the way of collaboration boggle the mind. To get academic credit for a student who's taking a course that is cross-listed in two departments, to have a co-appointed faculty member, to figure out the resource distribution of tuition money, all of that, can be absolutely exhausting. The, the fact that UC Berkeley, where I was for a number of years, doesn't have as many collaborative, uh, collaborations is not reflective of the fact that there aren't interesting collaborations possible across campus. Good Lord, if you've ever been on campus, we are about 50 feet away from the business school. That's not 50 yards away, it's 50 feet away from the business school. We are, you know, just a th stone's throw from these other departments. But it's just exhausting when you think about the kinds of collaborations. Hastings can come in, swoop in in some ways, and find uh, 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 faculty members who teach at one of these world-class universities. There may be some money involved, there may be some, some space involved, there may be maybe, maybe, maybe this and that, but there's some real opportunities to leverage the use of, uh, of resources and capacity to expand the scope in that, in that particular way. Just one other quick point about silos on this is that, and I appreciate you mentioning that uh, now, I actually have a radical view, and that radical view is, is, is a prediction of the future. And I think the prediction of the future, whether it's 20 years from now or it's 80 years from now, I think we'll look back at that time at this era in which we had business schools separate from law schools, separate from all these, and say, well, what was that about? Knowledge is an integrated business. Why should law schools be doing something entirely separate from, uh, from others? So, yes, sir. Um, actually, I, I was in awe of the fact that the last point you made because that was actually what I was going to come out with a contrarian view. I run an angel investor fund. We've, I, I'm an Apple and Cisco alumni. Worked with Steve and helped them get to a serious $200 billion market opportunity we executed. Have started a fund that actually has funded diverse startups that have raised from YC and 500 and are now just got acquired, uh, not acquired, we got invested in by a guy who sold a company for a billion to Richie Ludinus. So I would say to you, since I got Wilson to put a deferral and buy equity, the opportunities flip because the problem with all these great law firms and my lawyer is a UC Berkeley grad computer science, and then he switched to law because his dean said, you just argue too much on your grades, so we need you <laughs> in law school. And then he, uh, he was the first counsel for Intel and named it the day they named Silicon Valley. He's actually here, right over here in, off second admission. The thing that they're missing that you should look at, you're not just the officers of the court as legal people. You also have the ability to create the most powerful and important IP it's called amicus briefs and new terms of services. You don't have to be tied to a research institute to connect with one of the hackathons or groups that UC Berkeley School of Engineering does and also Twitter and Facebook hosts and EOS guys and Clipto. And they need terms of service. They need basic structures as they experiment with the new corporate structures and entities for these companies that get incubated out every day in Silicon Valley and all over the world. And I helped build the incubator in Twitter's building and about work with others. 
that that's the part where students can come out who are closer to understanding the structure of these new product services and their implications across legal, across government, across health, and can help develop the structures for that. Because that's the piece that's missing. And that's why the most disruptive things I've seen to come out of Silicon Valley have been things like convertible equity versus convertible notes, which came out of lawyers out of Oracle who were like, and some other people talking about the fact we need a model where we're not charging loan shark rates to startups who don't have money. Yep. Guys I, like, so that's where I think the thing, if there was a period in this last year where there was a practicum requirement where they intern with a startup or with an organization and develop, like we build open source yep. actual processes and protocols where they have to work on a project, you could have representatives from different ones. And in the open source model in Silicon Valley, there's open source law. Like, like, well, I'm seeing, I'm yeah. seeing, thank you for that. I'm seeing from the body language in the front that what they're saying is we're doing some of that. It's so, funny. so I, 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 I think you're, you're, you're I, I don't, from, from, from my vantage point, I don't disagree with you at all. I think that the challenge, the challenge, it's not just one, is, and you put your finger on it exactly, is you, you can build a more innovative program, curriculum, whatever, that's outward facing in the way that you're describing. It's not inward facing, it's outward in terms of service community. Let me make you a constructive suggestion in that regard to answer that question. There is a, an initiative that is really bubbled up from folks, didn't bubble up from Silicon Valley, although I think it's clearly now attaching itself in important ways there, called the Institute for the Future of Law Practice, IFLIP. They gotta come up with a better title. But, but, uh, but IFLIP is, is built on the paradigm of what law schools are not doing and also not projecting outward. So what they have ba basically developed is through the structure of a boot camp, post sort of first year, post second year boot camp, and connection with folks in the industry. Yeah. Okay, I have a question. Maybe yeah. it's a little bit of reverse of what you're talking about. Agreeing yep. with everything that you've said. Stop right there. I know. <laughs> At the end, you talked a little bit about things that are going to continue. Could you talk maybe a little bit about the continuities, even amongst all this change, that law students and lawyers can expect to learn at law school? Well, so one, uh, I think one constant, uh, given the marketplace, is that most law schools maybe well, uh, stick by that. I won't define what most means. Most law schools will have at, at, at the core not only near the core, but at the core of the curriculum, uh, initiatives and projects that train students to become very effective at new law firm jobs, that is, jobs as legal associates when they graduate from law school. Now, in the case of Northwestern, I could talk about technology and law and technology and startup culture until I'm blue in the face. I know that 75% of our students, when they graduate, are going into big law. That used to be 90, 95% before the crash, but that's still the majority. And so given the choice between going to work for Google or going to work for Kirkland and Ellis, they're probably going to take the latter over the former. And that, that you, can, you can judge that. I have some opinions about that, whatever. Their first job is not their second or third job. So given that, the law school... Uh, model based on what the students are demanding and the big law lawyers who are coming to the law school, many law schools and interviewing, smaller number at a lot of other schools, that a lot of the curriculum is designed and developed around that, for better or worse. I think we could change, ought to change, but I think that's, that's a particular constant, number one. The other thing that's a constant I'll just mention is, and maybe it's backwards, 
maybe not maybe it's backwards in many fundamental respects in which it is ba uh, backwards is the structure of the curriculum and the structure of the program is designed around faculty self-interest faculty preferences the faculty right so that uh, so that again I, I Re having them reimagine their own work and being connected to what the world is like to a variation on the theme that you mentioned before is having more faculty who are out there in involved and embedded in industry in some in some important ways is a key part of that but that happens very slowly if at all so as a, a, as a reality one of the constants is the development of programs and curricula and emphases in law schools will be by and large driven around uh, what the uh, what the faculty is is most uh, most uh, interested in a small footnote to that is uh, 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 Is part of the problem is regulation is what we're told we can't do so let's suppose a law school said forget about all this three-year model $50,000 a year training folks to go into big law our school students aren't getting those kinds of jobs Our students don't want to graduate with $150,000 in debt our students want to provide the kind of uh, legal support uh, to the new economy and they want to do that where the new economy flourishes uh, uh, in various ways. They're not able to do that. They can't, under the ABA's regulations, hold themselves out as a JD granting association. Now, California Bar could take the position you don't have to graduate from an ABA uh, accredited law school to do that. That's within the, the, the authority of the state, the state bars to decide. But until they do that, while they still have this death grip on regulation, it, shrink, it, just, it just compresses innovation in such a, in such a substantial way. I have a question, yep. sort of related. So I think that a lot of the students in this room, I know some of them went off to class, feel like we're in the middle of this transition period, right? Where we're going from this old guild-like system to this new who knows what. So what can we do as young people interested in law, interested in being these T-shaped lawyers, do to make ourselves attractive to these new hiring opportunities? Well, it you know, I... I, I the one uh, aspect that I'm less confident in predicting is the, uh, is the actual decision-making among employers of brand-new law graduates, okay? So, for example, you would imagine in an ideal, I, I would say in an ideal world, the plethora of opportunities uh, for brand-new graduates should uh, be much more eclectic and should, there should be opportunities not only in big law law firms but in in-house uh, uh, departments, and I don't just mean of gigantic uh, companies, but in smaller companies, all of that. What almost every hirer, other than large big law, shares in common is they won't hire people right out of, uh, of law school, right for graduation. So I have to be wary of saying to students, you know, you have to take your courses and, and, and do your, spend your third year outside of the building and do all these, these initiatives because I have to be cognizant, we have to as a faculty, of the economic choices the students are making and the burdens that they're making. So innovation from the top, in, in, in sense of changing around the law school, is very valuable. For, from the students, I understand, and we understand their instinct toward a somewhat more conservative mindset. What I think has to happen is at the level of the employers. What has to, really has to change are the folks who are hiring law students. And I don't mean they should just hire three times as many. I mean, they should push law schools to respond actively to what the needs and wants and demands of the marketplace are like. And the students have to urge on that development, but they can't be held responsible for just doing that development in all, in all particular way. I say one thing that's radical, much more radical than what I've just said though, and it goes back to the example of the program that I mentioned, put on the board that we have at Northwestern. I think a, a wider group of schools are gonna do that. Training for a three-year JD is not for everyone. And there are opportunities, both in terms of degrees or programs, hopefully many in law schools, some outside of law schools, that provide the kind of training and education 
for folks to get without being the all in, all the chips on the table for a three year uh, JD. So not everyone needs to go to a gold plated JD program in order to, uh, to prosper in a world in which law becomes legal, as it were, becomes a key part of it. Most probably do, and the guild that still exists, particularly in terms of traditional practice of law, require that. But let's say you wanted to do, go work for a tech startup. Let's say you wanted to go to work for Rocket Lawyer, you wanted to work for Neoto Logic or Ross or one of those companies. They are really interested in having skilled folks who have legal information. They don't care whether they have a JD, they don't care whether they're, they're a member of the California Bar, they're not gonna be representing clients in court. You know, you don't have to have a JD to, to develop a smart contract. Uh, you may have, you, you may have some, you, you need to have some substantial legal skills, not, uh, not enough to just understand the technology, but you don't have to have a degree from Hastings or a degree from Northwestern, a degree from Stanford to basically have the, the, the ability to connect law with uh, technology, blockchain or anything else uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, the, to, the, to the marketplace. I don't want to be Peter Thiel, like, you know, I'm going to give you a bunch of money if you drop out of school. That's a different model. But, but it's just not everybody needs to go to the, to the full, full all in law school for that. Um, you mentioned the idea that uh, democratizing law and creating a greater level of access to justice through technology might present existential crises for lawyers. And that, to me, would present an issue in terms of an incentive mismatch, um, meaning that lawyers might not necessarily want to contribute to technology that would promote access to justice if it renders them obsolete, or at least slightly more obsolete, or they might want to capitalize on that technology at the expense of people who do not have access to justice currently. So are there steps that you think the legal community can take uh, in order to align those incentives a bit more? You know, it's, it's a great question. I'll, I'll use this as an anecdote just to, to, to personalize it to some, to some important degree because I, I think it reflects this dilemma. So I'm, uh, 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 one of the hats I wear is I'm chair of the ABA Center for Innovation, which was a, 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 a center that was created as an outgrowth of the Commission on Legal Services. It's, a, it's a, a kind of a radically destabilizing force because it doesn't really belong in the ABA. We're not about the well-being of lawyers. We're about the well-being of of you know regulation of sort of service professionals. So the New York, I'll make a long story short. New York Bar has propounded a recommendation for the regulation of online service providers. It's clearly a naked protectionist initiative to try to blast away at, at LegalZoom and others uh, because of its uh, of its impact on uh, on lawyers. Now, I'm a reasonably harsh guy and pretty candid and some of my colleagues in the center are as well, we're trying to beat that down with all of the, the muscle that's required because we think it's a bad issue. But to your question, it doesn't solve the problem that you rightly identify, which is one thing for me to stand up in a crowded room and saying, you guys are naked protectionists. You should have the antitrust laws thrown at you. You should have the consumers rise up, whatever. I'm talking to a group of lawyers who are hanging on by a thread. And it's not that they are anti-justice, it's not that they don't care about the poor, it's not that, but they are also not working at ORIC. I mean, they're, they, are, they are struggling lawyers who are dealing with, uh, with the profound disruption of technology. And we haven't figured out, we haven't truly figured out how to align the incentives in a way. It's gotta be, my most hopeful thing I can say is, the availability of technology that addresses the access to justice gap addresses the individuals who would really never find their way to one of these lawyers because A, it would still be economically impossible for them to do so, 
and B, uh, the, that lawyer would in some sense be overkill. They don't need that lawyer representing them in that way. And so providing an opportunity for lawyers to move in a different direction and understand that the online service providers are not their problem. There's a lot of other things there that, that are their problem. The state of the economy is their problem. You know, I, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to make this a political rant, but it's like the version of the West Virginia coal miners. Who wants to stand up and basically say, I'm just going to bring these jobs back? I don't want to stand up and say, we're going to bring all these lawyers' jobs back. I mean, lawyers are going to be put out of business. And you could say they're put out of business by robots. No, they're put out of business by the state of the economy. And so now we're in a tough stage because before you get put out of business, folks hang on tooth and nail to keep that from, keep that from, from happening. And so that's, that's the sort of struggle we're in. But, but you're, you're asking exactly the right question. It's not just how to push against protectionism and the guild, democratizing law. That's why I say it's an existential. I could say democratizing law. Everybody likes democracy. Oh, democratizing law, that's mom and apple pie. Not if you're a lawyer hanging on by a thread. Not if you're a graduate of law school with $120,000 in debt. Democratizing law is like, I'm again that. I'm not in favor of, uh, of, uh, of, of that. I get, I tweeted, I'll just say this, I tweeted out this, this comment the other day about, uh, which I tend to, about, you know, it's really interesting, Pew Charitable Trust is putting all this money into uh, access to justice initiatives, et cetera, et cetera. And some lawyer wrote me, you know, my DM said, was the ABA Ethics Committee going to look into this? Because this sounds like the unauthorized practice of law. He didn't want to send that publicly through a tweet. He wanted to say it privately because he wanted to remind me of something, which is, it's all good, good for you, Dean, you know, going out there and talking about oh, it's great access to justice. But I'm a lawyer who makes, you know, 40 grand a year. And, uh, you know, be careful before you start celebrating all these technology. Yeah. Um, what's his name? Richard Horning, first counsel for Intel. It's because he was an engineer. He got deferral and he got equity in the company. Wilson was not built off all those fees. It was built off of Apple's IPO, the shares they got, the Google IPO, and the others. And if you're a lawyer, just like people in our MBA programs and PhD programs, who then do an internship, which is really you helping them make sure they're complying with the loss of the money they get in their round, doesn't get tied up in court to someone else. That's the fastest, best way to get equity and rev share, especially in places like blockchain and others where there's a lot of cash and a lot of regulatory problems. Well, so let me make a suggestion to you, and, and it's, it's born of agreement with everything you said. You and others of your colleagues need to communicate that meth message to students at this and other law schools. It's an important message, exactly. So I, exactly right. So I, I'm not saying you are not doing that. I'm saying I'm encouraging you to do just what you're doing because what students, this is not to blame the students, what law schools are built on is a paradigm of career service, what we call career, career strategy office. Hardworking folks, they in some ways have the worst job in law schools. Think about what they're doing, right? So they're, right. So they are working hard to just increase the number of positions taken by students. The, uh, in many law schools, yeah, so office, uh, yeah, OCI, office career, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's the interviewing paradigm, to encourage students to be chance risk takers in the way that you've described and using anecdotes of folks who are happy because they've gone off for fortune and fame and all that is a good thing. But they need to, it needs to encourage students to, to, to take, that, you know, take that particular uh, plunge. Easier in a place like California, Northern California, some other parts of the world because we're risk takers out here. Right? But there are a lot of parts of the world in which, again, I come back to this debt, and I know I'm banging that same drum. It's easy for us to talk about risk-taking, uh, but it's harder when somebody's got $160,000 of debt. Say, oh, you should, uh, you should go work for Y Combinator. 
So I want to let poor Dean Rodriguez nope, sit down. Nothing poor about it. No, I, I, I enjoyed um, it. Thank you. I welcome anyone who wants to just stick around. Yeah. We're gonna we have more food and drink and well beer well, and lounge and, music. And, and thanks, thanks. Let me let me have the last word if I can. Uh, thanks for all the great work you're doing at LexLab. This is really a tremendous, tremendous endeavor, a startup in, in in important respects. One that I know is near and dear to the heart of not only constituents of Hastings, many of uh, whom I know, but uh, more to the point to the to the ecosystem here in the here in the Bay Area. So it's you got a you got a great precious jewel here and so keep keep the ping pong table up and all the other stuff here i know that's the student lounge but yeah. thank you thanks again to dan rodriguez for joining us today make sure to listen next week for a recording from our recent lunch and learn session where we invited a number of successful legal tech entrepreneurs to our space to talk about how they got where they are today to learn more about LexLab or to learn how to attend our Lunch and Learn sessions, visit us online at lexlab.uchastings.edu. That's L-E-X-L-A-B This show is recorded live at UC Hastings by Jake Quinton and has been edited and produced by Ben Ambrogi.